The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. Can we be confident in our salvation? That is a thing that I think we long for, but confidence in our salvation is one of those areas that a lot of people struggle with, and that shouldn't be the case. We are given promises by God, and if we study very little of the Bible at all, we can come to an understanding that when God promises something, He always follows through with His promise, whether bad or good. And so we should be able to have a confidence in our salvation. We should be able to have a confident hope, but there are some who just don't have a confident hope. I kind of want to talk about that a little bit this morning. Why should we and can we have a full assurance of hope? Well, the Bible actually uses that phrase. In Hebrews 6 and verse 11, the Hebrew writer says, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so he speaks of, a full assurance of hope that he is encouraging his readers to show diligence unto. That is, they might not have a reason for a full assurance of hope at that time, but they certainly can change what they're doing to have a full assurance of hope. Well, how can we or can we have such confidence in our hope of salvation? Well, let me first suggest to you that the whole reason the Bible is written is to give us that confidence, to show us the way, and by following that way, give us confidence in our salvation. In fact, a whole epistle is written with that purpose in mind. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, John says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So, God is trying to give us confidence. And I would suggest to you that if we don't have confidence in our salvation, then something is probably wrong in our lives. Because God has given us everything we need, provided every single thing that we need to have confidence in our salvation. So there's no reason we shouldn't have confidence in our salvation unless we're either ignorant about the Word of God or we know the Word of God and we just aren't submitting to the Word of God. But rest assured that God offers full confidence in salvation. He not only offers us full confidence in salvation, but He expects us to have full confidence in our salvation and He encourages us to have full confidence in our salvation. You know, that's what the word hope actually means. Hope is confident expectation. This is contrary to the way a lot of people speak about hope. Even in the religious world, you hear phrases like hoping against hope and you need to hope for the best and just expect the worst. They'll talk about hope as if it's a simple wish, but that's not biblical hope, not at all. Hope is confident expectation. That's what the Greek word actually means. Hope is elpis. Strong defines it as to anticipate, usually with pleasure expectation, abstractly or concretely, or confidence. Vine says it's favorable and confident expectation. Thayer says it's joyful and confident 
expectation. Arton Gingrich says it's the looking forward to something with the re- some reason for confidence, respecting fulfillment, hope, expectation. And so that's exactly what hope is. It's not like a chance. It's not like a gamble. Biblical hope is expectation. We don't have it, but we confidently expect it. We don't wish for it. We know that it's coming. We expect it. Is that how you feel about your salvation? Because that's what hope is. That's what God wants for us. And that's what He offers us in the Bible. But notice in Hebrews 6, He he speaks about a full assurance of hope, which, which kind of just strengthens the idea of hope in the first place. That phrase, full assurance, is the Greek word pleurophoria. Vine defines it as a fullness, abundance. It also means full assurance, as is translated. Entire confidence. So literally a full carrying. Pleros is full and pharaoh to carry, so it's a compound word meaning fully carrying. But notice he said that it means entire confidence. So if if hope is confident expectation, and the phrase full assurance means entire confidence, he's saying, I want you to press on and give diligence to the entire confidence of your confident expectation of salvation. And so it's just a type of of emphasis that the Bible is giving to us, that it's given to us in, in many different ways, in many different texts just giving us a stronger wording of the kind of confidence that we can have in our salvation. The Hebrew writer is saying that his desire is for these readers and for us, by extension, to be able to fully carry with the utmost confidence the expectation of being in heaven with God for eternity. Do we have that? It's important that we have that. That's what hope is, and it's necessary that we have that. Notice in Romans 8 and verse 24 that Paul says, We were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We noted the nature of hope, but consider how necessary it is for the Christian. Notice Paul's wording there. We were saved in hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one who still hope for what he, is, what he sees? We hope for what we do not see. In other words, we were saved. We were washed of our sins. We were given a, a, a measure of salvation and that we were saved from our sins. But Paul's words imply that we're not fully saved yet. We, we haven't received the fullness of our salvation yet. And that's why it's said that the Christian has hope. We were saved in hope, and hope means you don't have something yet, but you expect it, which means when we were saved at baptism, we weren't fully saved yet. There's still a lot of work to do. The fullness and realization of our salvation is in the future, which is why it's called hope. And that's by God's design. Romans 8.20 says that we were subjected to this futility in hope by God. We didn't do it willingly, but He subjected us to this suffering through hope or with hope. And I think we can see the necessary role of hope in the next verse. He says, if we hope 
for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for with perseverance. So there's a lot of bad things that happen in life, especially for those who try to live godly in Christ Jesus. There are more things that are added in ways of difficulty for those who have decided to follow Jesus. How are we going to get through it? Well, hope. Hope gets us through it. Hope allows us to persevere, as Romans 8.25 says. It is absolutely necessary that we have a confident expectation of our salvation so that we can, with that confident expectation, get through the difficulties. 1 Peter chapter 1 speaks of the hope, speaking about how God has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's described as an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. I want us to notice he says it's a living hope. That's contrary to a dead hope. That would be what I would suggest to you in many times is why we use the phrase hope against hope, where we hope for it, but it's against hope. It's against an expectation. It's, it's a dead hope. We don't really expect it. We hope for it in the, the uh, worldly sense of the term, but we don't really expect it. We hope for the best, but we actually expect the worst. That's a dead hope. That's not what the Christian's hope is. It's a living hope. It's something that's legitimate and true. And I think we see the key to that in chapter three of or one of First Peter and verse five when he says, "We're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation to be revealed in the last time." That's the hope that he's speaking about. That salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're kept by faith. The reason why this hope is living and legitimate and true is because it's undergirded by our faith. Hebrews 11 and verse 1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. So while we don't have it, that's what hope is, we don't have it yet, we don't see it, there's substance to it. And our substance is faith. Faith comes by hearing, as we mentioned last lesson, and hearing by the Word of God. So, so what the Bible is telling us is that we can confidently expect it because we have faith which comes from God's immutable word. Because God's word says it, and that's as good as having it, then we expect it. We're kept by faith for that hope. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, All the promises of God in Him are yes, and in Him amen to the glory of God through us. Which means that we can expect it because God said it. As we mentioned last lesson, the the scripture cannot be broken. If God makes a promise and he promises us salvation, then we can confidently expect it if we have faith that undergirds it in the word of God. Just like Romans 8 showed the necessity of hope because if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. First Peter goes on to show that we have a testing of our faith through fire and we show the genuineness of our faith as we continue to endure, and verse 9 says we receive the end of our faith, that is the object of our hope, the salvation of our souls, because it's living, it is not dead. Hope is necessary, and we see its necessity even with the words of Paul. In Ephesians six seventeen. he says, put on the helmet of salvation. Now, we're given a divine commentary on what that helmet is in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 8 when he says, let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so in the armor of God, our helmet, which is a vital piece of our armor, everything else is important too, but think about the helmet for a soldier, protecting him from shrapnel, protecting 
a vital component of, of the body, where a blow to the body may be absorbed and, and you certainly are injured by it, but you go on to live, a blow to the head may kill you. And so our helmet is of great importance. And he says the helmet of the Christian is the hope of salvation. How can we venture out into battle with bravery, with confidence? It's because we know we have salvation. How would we be able to withstand a persecutor to the face and never, ever deny our faith in Christ? Well, only if we have the hope of salvation. If you don't believe you're going to go to heaven, if your life is taken from you, you're not going to confess Christ before men. You're going to save your skin. But the person who has the hope of salvation, that confident expectation, he's protected like a helmet protects our head, and he can go forth. Hope is absolutely vital. And I think we can furthermore see why hope is so important. While it's, why it's important for you to have a confidence in your salvation, as God's promised, by seeing what happens if we don't have a confidence of our salvation. That's kind of what Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 15. You might remember that he's talking to those people who believe Christ was raised from the dead, but they don't believe in the general resurrection. And he shows a, a contradiction in logic with that. If, if you believe that there is no resurrection, then you can't believe that Christ is raised from the dead because they go hand in hand. And if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we have no hope. He says in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 15, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all the men most pitiable. And he explains furthermore, what the logical end of that is. If you don't have confidence of salvation, you don't have that hope. He says, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Verse 30. I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if we don't have a hope of life hereafter, we only have hope in this life in Christ, then why are we suffering for the cause of Christ? Why don't we just live it up, eat and drink for tomorrow we die? If this life is all there is, there's no hope of something beyond, then why are we living righteously? Why are we living godly? You see, if there is no hope, then nothing makes sense with what we're doing. If you don't have confidence in your salvation, then it makes no sense for you to be doing what you're doing. Might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But the fact is that because Christ has been raised from the dead, we do have hope in Him. And that leads us to this conclusion, as Paul says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. In other words, we do have hope. And what hope does, that confidence of salvation in heaven with God, what that will do if you have it, is it will lead you to a life of righteousness. Do you have that though? Why should you have that hope? Why should you have that confidence? Well, God's given us so many things that should give us that confidence, give us absolute certainty that we, according to His Word, do have that crown of righteousness laid up for us in heaven. That as Jesus said in John 14, there are mansions prepared for us and there's plenty and room in heaven for us to be there with Him. We can have confident expectation because of what God has done for us. Let me offer you a few of those reasons that will shore up our faith, will undergird the hope that we have, give us further confidence 
in our salvation and relationship with God. Let me suggest to you one of the things that should give you confidence in your salvation is God's eternal plan. God's flawless plan, but not only His flawless plan, the time frame of that plan. Before time began, God planned for us to be saved. God planned for mankind to have a way out of sin and therefore spiritual death. He was always thinking of us, in other words, and He was always planning for us. In Ephesians 1 and verse 4, it says that He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. Now what he's not saying is that individually He chose Jeremiah, or He chose you as an individual before you were ever born or before you ever even did anything good or evil to be the Son of God in Christ Jesus. To be a child of God in Christ Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that his plan before time began, before the foundation of the world, determined that those who are baptized into Christ Jesus, those who find their way into Christ Jesus. Galatians 3 says that's in baptism. As many of you are baptized, have put on Christ. Those who are in Christ Jesus are those who will be saved, are those who have the hope of salvation, are those who are holy and without blame before Him in love, are those who are children of God. God made a plan before time began that if you step into Christ through obeying His will, and if you've done that, then you have that hope. In Ephesians 3 and verse 11, it says, according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So before the foundation of the world and according to His eternal purpose. Now, why should that give us confidence? Well, think about it this way. When someone cares uh, about you, maybe it's a, a parent caring for a child, they make plans for that purpose, person. They may plan for their future and education or even just simply plan for the next meal. When we care about something or we care about someone, we plan for that thing or for that person. If we don't care about something, we just kind of wing it as we speak sometimes. We, we don't really prepare for it. We, we put it off and we don't think about it as much and we just kind of do things randomly if we don't care about it too much. But when something is of great importance, we put a lot of thought into it. We plan for it. We think about it. That's what God did for us. God has, before the foundation of the world, planned for us to be saved. And if He has put that much thought into it, if He has thought of you and me in that way, then we should have confidence if we're a part of that plan, if we've submitted to the plan. That should give us great confidence. You know, in Genesis 3 and verse 15, we see that plan begin to unfold very early on, well before you or I were born. When the first sin was committed, there was the prophecy made against the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so there is put in place that plan that occurred before the foundation of the world that Satan would be defeated and we would be given victory. You know, I want to add something else to that, though. 
not only did he plan before the foundation of the world, but he carried that plan out. You know, sometimes we plan because something's important to us and our plans fail miserably. But God not only planned, he executed that plan perfectly. He did it at the perfect time. In Romans 5 and verse 6, it says, When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. In due time. Not a second too early, not a second too late. Christ died at the perfect time. Galatians 4 and 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a wooden woman, born of the law, under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so God not only planned always for us, and that gives us confidence, but He executed that plan to perfection. As Job realized in Job 42 and verse 2, as he spoke to God, I know that you can do everything and no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. That should give us supreme confidence in our standing with God. But there's the part of that plan which has to be considered, which also gives us great confidence, and that's the sacrifice of Christ. I want us to notice the contrast in Hebrews chapter 10 between what doesn't give us confidence and what does give us confidence. He looks to the old law, which these men were turning back to and away from Christ, and that's what the epistle is about, to encourage them to have faith and continue in the, the way that was Christ and not turn back to what foreshadowed him and therefore away from what he offered in salvation. He compares what lack of confidence there was under the old law in regard to the remission of sins. It says, The law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year for it is not possible. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So all that blood offered, all those animals that died because of sin, they merely represented something that was to come. They were ineffective within themselves. There's no confidence whatsoever in those sacrifices. They couldn't make those who approach perfect. And verse 2 says what that perfection is. It did not purify them. They had consciousness of sins. It did not purify their conscience. Chapter 9 says, though, that that was the blood of Christ that accomplished that. That's what he goes on to say in Hebrews 10. Here's the confidence you have, not these sacrifices. But he says in verse 5, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offering and sacrifices for sins you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sins you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There he quotes Psalm 40 in verses 6 through 8, which was speaking about the fact that God really doesn't delight in those sacrifices of bulls and goats for the same reason that is said by the Hebrew writer in verses 1 through 4. They can't, they can't take away the sin. They can't atone for sin. It doesn't do anything for God. You sinned against God. Those sacrifices don't do anything for you. 
It's not suggesting that they weren't commanded and that they didn't have to do them and God wasn't pleased with their obeying that will, but the sacrifices in and of themselves don't take care of the sin problem. And the psalm is actually talking about that's not what he desires. Really what he ultimately desires, as Psalm 51 says, is a broken and contrite heart. He wants your heart. He wants your obedience. And so I'm going to do your will, O God. Now it's applied to the Christ here, and it's applied in that sacrificial way. These sacrifices you didn't desire. That didn't do the do it. It didn't, it didn't accomplish what needed to be accomplished. But your will, as is applied in the text of Hebrews 10, is that Christ, Jesus Christ, be sacrificed for sins. And you prepared a body for me to do that, the Christ is saying, quoting that psalm. And so I've come to do your will, and by that will we have been sanctified by the offering of Jesus once for all. He says in verse 14, by one offering is perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In verse 18, he says, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering of sin. And so what happens with the perfect sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice? We don't need any more when that's offered. What's the result of that? Well, it's hope. It's confident expectation. He says, therefore, verse 19, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the household of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can approach the throne in boldness. We can have great confidence because of the sacrifice of Christ. But let me suggest to you that regardless of how wonderful the sacrifice of Christ is according to God's plan, if he was not raised from the dead, then that sacrifice is worthless. So it has to be the entirety of God's plan where we can receive that confident expectation. We have confidence because of his plan. We have confidence because of the execution of that plan and the sacrifice of Christ, but also the execution of that plan and the resurrection of Christ. We mentioned this briefly before, but notice in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 12, the lack of confidence when there is the assertion that Christ has not been raised from the dead, which he has been, but there has to be the resurrection of Christ for that confidence to to be here. In verse 12 he says, If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He has raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If Christ is not raised, it doesn't matter the sacrifice. It was invalid because he was invalid. The resurrection of Christ secures the validity of the sacrifice of Christ. And so there's confidence in the sacrifice, but not without the resurrection. But there's good news. He says in verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. The reason we have confidence that we will be raised from the dead to life eternal in Christ Jesus 
is because he was raised first. That's what he means by first fruits. Under the old law, the first fruits were harvested and given to God. And what that did is it signified the dedication to God. We're giving him the first of what we have and the best of what we have. But also the first fruits were an indication from God to the children of Israel that the rest were following. You would receive more crop. The first fruits show that. And so Christ was raised from the dead first, which means we will be raised following him. In Romans 8 and verse 29, he's called the firstborn among many brethren. In fact, as we mentioned before, we were gotten again to a living hope, and that living hope to an incorruptible inheritance, undefiled, which does not fade away, it's through the resurrection of Christ. Because he was raised, we can be certain of our inheritance. Fourthly, we can be certain of our salvation. We can have confident expectation because of the revelation of God. This kind of plays on what we studied in the first hour. The scripture cannot be broken, which means if the scripture says that you will be saved if you do this, that, and the other, if the scripture gives promises, God through the holy writing, then you can have confident expectation of the fulfillment of those promises. How did the Corinthians know of Christ's resurrection? No doubt there probably were were some perhaps who had actually witnessed it, experienced it, but maybe not. Maybe they just heard of it. And I think that that's the implication in 1 Corinthians 15. Notice in verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which you are also saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. How did they believe? God preached, the, or Paul preached the gospel to them. What did that gospel entail? Well, one of the main things was what I delivered to you is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures and then He was seen by many, many eyewitnesses. And so how did they believe in the resurrection of Christ? Why? It's not necessarily the case that they themselves were eyewitnesses, but they received the gospel which was validated through the miracles that were performed among them, that were validated through the eyewitness testimonies. They heard a message and believed the message of God. They didn't have any confidence in another gospel, which is why the Apostle Paul rebukes them and warns them in 2 Corinthians 11, Oh, that you would bear with me with a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. In other words, there's no confidence in some other message which comes and contradicts this message, like we talked about this morning in our first hour. The confidence comes from God's will, from God's revelation. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, it says, God desires all men to be saved. But he adds, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, he desires all men to be saved. How are all men to be saved? Coming to the knowledge of the truth. 
This is why Paul said what he said in Romans 1.16 when he was expressing excitement and eagerness to go preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. How can we have confidence in our hope? How can we have confidence in our salvation? How can we have the full assurance of hope? Well, if we abide in the Word of God, if we follow His revelation, we will absolutely be saved. As Jesus said in John 8, 31, If you abide in My Word, you are My disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That is from sin. Second John 9 says, Those who abide in the doctrine of Christ have the Father and the Son. This is why the Apostle Paul encouraged Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 1, to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And he applies that to being faithful and diligent to present himself a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The grace that he's to stand strong in is defined really in chapter 1 when he says that those things have been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The grace that is revealed in Christ Jesus, is revealed in the gospel. You stand strong in the grace, that means you stand strong in the gospel. He said in verse 13 of 2 Timothy 1, hold fast the pattern of sound words. If we are holding fast to the gospel, if we've obeyed the gospel and are obeying the gospel, if we're remaining faithful to God through obedience to the gospel, then we can have confidence in our salvation which brings us to our fifth and final point of the reasons that are given to us for us to have a full assurance of hope, a confident expectation of our salvation. It's not simply through God's plan, executed in the sacrifice and resurrection of Christ and revealed to us in the gospel, but it's in our submission to, adherence to, and continuance in that eternal plan revealed to us in the gospel. Remember in Hebrews chapter 6, the text that we began with, which speaks of a full assurance of hope? The implication is that the brethren were not yet there. He says in verse 11, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to or unto, you're not there yet, to or unto the full assurance of hope that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I think we're familiar with the context where at the end of chapter 5, the Hebrew writer admonished them for their lack of spiritual maturity. By this time, you ought to have become teachers. But now you're in need of being taught the first principles of the oracles of God. You need milk again, even though you have been a Christian for a long time and should have progressed from milk to meat. And in chapter 6, he goes on to demonstrate that that's not inconsequential. It's it's not that it's okay if we're not progressing in our knowledge of the gospel and our growth in faith. If we're not progressing, we're regressing. And chapter 6 shows that in the warning of apostasy. If you have fallen away after you have been enlightened by the gospel, it's impossible for anyone to tell you something from the gospel to renew you to repentance. It's not that you can't repent, but if you rejected the gospel and not showing an interest and growing in it, then no one can tell you anything to motivate you that is nothing from the gospel. And if you fall away then, how terrible is that? 
And so that's the warning. They're not there yet. They're actually falling back away. And he's saying, I want you to show diligence to the full assurance of hope. And he has confidence that they will. He says in verse 9, Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things which accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. That's when he says, we want you to go on to the full assurance of hope. Well, how do you do that? Well, he says, show the same diligence that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So let me suggest to you that while you can have confidence of your salvation because of God's immutable and perfect plan, His carrying out of that plan in the death and resurrection of Christ, and the perfect and flawless revelation of that plan, which means if you follow it, you will be saved. You've got to follow it. You cannot have confident expectation of salvation without diligence, without hard work, without energy to do what God says, and faith, which comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and patience, enduring, not just believing for a little while or initially and thinking you're saved, but continuing to endure throughout time, throughout the entirety of your life. Patience. Only then can you have confidence in your salvation. Abraham is then given an example of this in verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And so if we stop living for Christ, if we're living a double life, and thinking we're living for Christ, but really we're also living in the world, if we're just being sluggish and we're not progressing, then no, we can't have confidence in our salvation. But if we are faithfully executing God's will in our life daily, if we're studying to present ourselves to prove to God and applying what we've studied, and we're constantly seeking to add to our faith and grow in these things, then we absolutely can have confidence in our salvation. And that's why I suggested at the very beginning that if we don't have confidence in our salvation, it's probably one of two things. We're ignorant about the, God, the confidence that God offers us, and I don't think that's the case. And so if we're not confident in our salvation, it may just be that we're not right with God. And that's really a divine warning system that God has given to each one of us. It's called a conscience. And yes, a conscience can be misdirected, and so someone can have a good conscience and think they're okay when really they're the furthest from it. But Christians who are studying God's Word are building up their conscience with knowledge, which means when we break God's law and sin, then that alarm system goes off. We know we've done wrong because we know God's Word and our conscience testifies that we haven't done what God has said to do. We failed. We've sinned. And that's not to give us some confidence of salvation. That's actually to show us we're not right with God so that we can get right with God, be forgiven of our sins, do what's right, and then have confidence again. In other words, as much as God has done to give us confidence, we have to work with God. We've got to, we've got to meet Him halfway, if you will. God has done His part. We've got to do our part. And if we're not doing our part, we can't have confidence. Philippians 2.12 says, 
work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In 2 Peter 1 and verse 10, Peter says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Make your call and election sure. We can have confidence, but we've got to be faithful to God.